Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host, and hopefully our guest will be popping in uh, every once in a while. This seems to happen. I just confirmed several times. Uh, yesterday, we even made sure that he was coming in at the right time because it's specific time. So he knows that the show starts started at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m., and he was supposed to be in 15 minutes early. And I think I'm just seeing him. Wow, he's here. Okay. <laughs> All right, so the show will go on. All right, here we go. So uh, Scott Cassell uh, is an amazing adventurer, and he was actually the first one to ever film a giant squid in the wild, which is pretty amazing, Captain Nemo type of guy. Uh, he's got over 15,000 hours of dive time. An amazing adventurer. I'm really excited to talk about him. He saw something very strange uh, while he was actually scuba diving, and we're going to be talking about that. So I'm really looking forward to uh, talking to him. And the blog this week by Charles Lear is part two. Uh, it was of the a 1991 crop circle and UFO investigation by Paranet and MyCap. Uh, so check that out uh, in the uh, blogs get made into audio blogs, as always. Uh, next week, we have Dave Mason on. That's Halloween evening. So uh, enjoy your Halloween evening. After you get done trick-or-treating, you can come and watch the show. So I am ready to bring in our adventurous guest. Uh, I don't know what... Uh, let me try that one more time. There you are. Hey, Scott, how are you? Hi, can you hear me okay? I can, yes. Uh Glad you made it. I was a little concerned there, but you 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 got in. I, I do apologize about that. I wasn't abducted by UFOs. I uh, have something else that came up. Sorry. So well, I, I, yeah. that question was going to uh, come up. So <laughs> yes. So uh, so Scott, you are an amazing guy. I, I'm looking at all the things you've done, and one of the things I saw that you did was uh, you helped catch uh, poachers, which I think is really important. And uh, a, a great a great thing to put your your great talents to, um, and dozens of people have been arrested. You know, I mean, so many things are harmed and wiped out, and you know, always have been. You know, by uh, think of there used to be something like thirty million buffalo or something like that. You know, we we can do it. We can do numbers in the passenger pigeon, and you know, all that. We can certainly wipe out things pretty easy. So I'm glad that you got involved in that. But, um, you know, you think of like a pilot when they talk about having, you know, 15,000 hours and something like that. Well, yeah, you know, a lot of them are commercial flights and, you know, they kind of put it on autopilot. You can't do that in a submarine. You can't do that. You have to be uh, attentive all the time and, uh, and amazing. I probably have like 12 hours of scuba diving. Oh, good. <laughs> my, you know, something like that. No, probably more, but still. Uh, I, I love the, the whole undersea thing. I always have since, uh, a, a kid. So, uh, but you had quite an adventure. I don't know, uh, if we, you want to, we want to dive right into, uh, how do you like that pun? Dive right into it. Uh, <laughs> Actually, I liked it quite a bit. I just, I just yeah. want to say it's really nice to finally meet you up front and, uh, face to face. And I'm, um, I'm, I'm really thankful that you, you had me on here for your lovely listeners, uh, this well, is a you. subject that I haven't really talked about very many times ever. Uh, it's I've only recently started talking about it, even though this happened around two. I'm guessing 2005. I, uh, I have to go back and really pinpoint the date, but uh, 
it's one of those days I tried to forget. Actually, um, you're not it, it, you're not the only one that says that. A lot of people, you know, um, I had uh, matter of fact, I had a guest on. I don't know, maybe a month ago, Jonathan Wigan, who actually came upon a crashed uh, UFO. I don't know what else you'd call it. Some type of craft and some rocks in uh, Peru. And uh, he says, you know, he's he just wants to forget it. That's a day. I said, when you think back on this, he goes, I try not to. You know, he tries to forget about it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've had, I had an experience like that in my life that I, I wanted to forget about, you know, that something it was weird stuff that happened. But I so I totally get that. But, um, uh, you know, we'll get into the story uh, because it really is, you know, quite astonishing um, of what what you saw. But first of all, what made you so interested in going this deep? And here it is, another pun into, you know, the underwater world. Well, I've. I grew up with uh, National Geographic and National Ge uh, and, and uh, Jacques Cousteau and his undersea world. Oh, yeah. uh, so my whole upbringing was mutual of Omaha's wild kingdom and nature. Yeah. And I came from an abusive household. So my way of finding solstice was going out into the oceans and into woods and stuff like that. And, and uh, I was born in California, but I was raised in the South. I was raised Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, um, Georgia. Um, and when I was 15 years old in Georgia, I, I, uh, I found a uh, uh, underwater commercial training out there at Buford, Georgia. And I was only 15, but I had a um, I had a work permit so I could go work at Wendy's or something. And I walked into the dive school and I said, hey, if I have this permission to work at Wendy's, can't I learn a trade? And they said, I don't know if it's legal, but let's just say yes. <laughs> so at, at 15 years old, mowing lawns and doing odd jobs, moving moving trees from the backyard to the front yard for being uh, re recovered and stuff at age 15. I was, uh, I was living on my own. My parents had already thrown me out. And um, so I was kind of living on people's floors and, and, but when I was at the college of Ocean, um, underwater commercial training, um, I found a home. I felt instantly, I felt like this is where I need to be. And so I learned how to be an underwater welder at the age of 15 and I got some odd jobs right away, but still too young to work. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I was, I was helping out where I wasn't really legally supposed to by good people that trusted me. Um, and then when I turned 17 years old, I started, uh, doing all types of commercial salvage work, little lightweight stuff. And then I uh, joined Boy, the Navy. So young to be doing that. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I joined the Navy at 17 too, cause I got my mom to sign off on it. Um, and, um, you know, I, I spent, uh, several years in the Navy and then got out. Uh, as a trained as a medical uh, a corpsman, and then from there I joined the Army National Guard. I I I always wanted to be in the military, but I also wanted to dive, and the Navy wouldn't let me be a diver. So, which is silly because I was already a diver, and yeah. so I went into the Army and I learned how to dive in the Army. <laughs> so, oh my the Army goodness, has more wow. divers than the Navy, and uh, in many cases, uh, uh, Army divers are much better than uh, the Navy divers in every way you look. Uh, both Isn't combat that funny? divers. That that make that's so weird because someone said, "How about Sea Hunt?" That's with uh, Lloyd Bridges. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was a great one. So, uh, yeah, you think about this. You know, the the Navy has great pilots. You know, <laughs> here it is. So the Army has great divers. That's pretty. Well, funny. the Army has the Army has the biggest Air Force in the world too. We have more helicopters and than all the other armed forces combined. So we have more pilots. We have more divers. 
Um, so you know, everything I was bad. Yeah. But I've, I've worked with a, a lot of different groups while I was in the Army National Guard and um, and uh, just really, you know, some people say that, you know, I got in the military and had a little time in it and I it was OK. I didn't really like it. And after four years, they're done. And then there are people like me that just hang on for 33 years, <laughs> whether I'm paid or not, always there, uh, just okay. loving the place because I've always had the best jobs in the military. Mm, so wow. part of those jobs were diving and and. Um, I don't talk much about my military uh, background, but I will talk a little bit about uh, my military contractor background where I uh, assigned myself uh, or, or got to work with a lot of wonderful guys with uh, special operations training group, Camp Pendleton, California. And mm. uh, as a civilian contractor, got uh, in with some wonderful uh, special operations groups there with the, with the master diver. And uh, got signed off on a whole bunch of things that I never could have done as a, as a, as a in the Navy. And I got signed off as a civilian dive supervisor, dive med tech, um, and uh, did a whole bunch of work with Special Operations Training Group and with uh, you know training air crews how to splash in the water and all that stuff uh, with with different systems. And I just had a whole lot of fun. And then with that technique uh, and the skill sets, I ended up being a contractor in lots of combat zones. Um, always mm. is what I always consider a good guy. I'm always there spying on bad guys so we can go rescue good guys or, you know, going to help people that are sick or injured. You know, I've always been trying to be the good guy, but bottom mm. line is I've got more combat dives with the rebreather and with either a sniper rifle or a regular rifle wow. for insertion points than any Navy SEAL that I know. Is um, that right? So, yeah. So it's kind of funny. I've actually worn the, the Draeger R5, R7s more than any Navy SEAL that I know. And I've worked with a lot of Navy SEALs. They're great guys. But uh, I think they're more interested in getting their shot on Hollywood than they are doing a good job. So they're all <laughs> over the media and they don't never hear about people like me. So, and that's yeah. where we like. Well, uh, the thing that's always fascinated me is the rebreather. I've always wondered what that is like when you're when you're breathing that is is that like do you get is that something you can only do for so long? And well, can you I mean, explain how that works? I mean, there's no bubbles coming up. For yeah, one. well, no bubbles, no troubles. It's a depending on the dive system that you're wearing. It depends on the mission you're using it for. I mean, um, one of the reasons that we use the LAR-5 is we open up our backs. We can slap uh, military equipment on there or even a parachute. Um, and uh, so you, you, you wear your life support on your front. And you know, you, it's kind of nice actually having it right there because when you're wearing a whole bunch of combat dive gear, you know, sometimes it's not as easy to move your hands around when you're when you're slaving a sniper rifle in a bag. Uh, you got your three-day pack inside of a, a, a depth-compensated bag, so it has its own air source. You're wearing a dry suit because the water's pitch, pitch, actually black pitch cold. And uh, at the same time, you got your LAR-5 or LAR-7 on your tummy, and you're having to navigate all of those buoyancies as you shift through the water column up and down. So if you go up, it's not just your BC that you have to burp out. Now you have to burp out a little expanding air in your re rebreather out your nose, and you may have to expand a little bit out of one of these bags that may accidentally have a little more air in it than you wanted. You try and do a vacuum on those bags, but nothing's perfect. So you find out how the things behave once you're in the water and you have all these different buoyancy. So, you know, you got your rebreather buoyancy, you got your, uh, uh, your, your buoyancy compensator, you got your dry suit and you got two or three bags on your back and you're having to juggle all that. And if you hit the surface, people kill you. So you, you got to make sure you stay on the bottom. So, wow. um, so those, wow. those rebreathers and that I love diving and operating, 
And uh, also you got mixed gas rigs that are either computer controlled or mass flow injection. And the kind I like are the mass flow backed up by uh, electronics telling you what you have. But I like a manual rebreather. I don't like electronics. Uh, to me, they're just, you know, like I said, you know, um, you don't want to over stimulate a, a person who's already tired, been through been through a whole lot, physically exhausted, mentally exhausted, and they're coming back from a difficult mission. Now you want a complicated rebreather to work on? Uh, you want something pretty simple. You know, oh, so. yes. Yeah. So I know uh, my listeners are all excited to hear about the, uh, <laughs> you know, your, your incident. But before we go there, uh, mm -hmm. besides the incident that you had and the giant squid, any other weird or unusual really uh, – you know, amazing things that you've seen with all these 15,000 hours underwater? I've, uh, I've seen some pretty amazing things. Uh, I have a lot of fish stories, which means I saw things and I didn't get them on film and I don't talk much about them. Um, one time I actually swam in the water. Uh, well, I was diving with giant Humboldt squid and I got beat up pretty bad because uh, I was diving alone, you know, and I'm doing my own research and filming uh, expeditions, trying to get behavior footage of these squid. And uh, they're very aggressive. Uh, sometimes if you find the bigger ones, uh, they're mm -hmm. a little more tame. But if you find the smaller ones that are only like five and six feet long, those are very aggressive. So they'll, they'll fly ah. into you know, the tens and try to eat you. So you have to wear a chainmail suit, chain uh, cable <laughs> to the boat. Uh, you have to wear yeah. wrist guards because they'll break your arms right through the chainmail because it's like getting oh, hit. Yeah. If you put up your arm and you, you're wearing chainmail against somebody with a knife, you won't get cut. But if you do the same thing against a sledgehammer, it's going to break your forearm. Well, that's the way the Humboldt squid are. They'll break your wrists, as I found out, right through your chainmail, which they did. Oh, so I just gotten I just gotten hurt by this. Broke my wrist in five places, and I ripped my shoulder out of its socket. And oh uh, I was just, I was just and this was on day three of a thirty day expedition that I had already fundraised. So this is me paying for it. So I was oh. like, oh, crap, I got to die. So I, I I went into this little welder uh, in, in this tiny little Mexican town, and he built up this shark cage for me. And uh, it had to be small enough for one person to fit on a tiny open 26-foot ponga. So, so it, was a, it was a clown show. And so, oh. you know, so I had a day off of diving. So literally <laughs> day off? Months, yeah, that's, I was a hurting puppy. Try putting on a wetsuit when you're – barely move your arm it's, it's a, five it's a broken places i don't know how you did it that, well amazing. you know you just push you know it's amazing your new boundaries you find when you push are pretty amazing and you know if you, not everybody's had the privilege uh of being through some of the training that i've been through but they you you find out what it's like to be awake for a week straight and uh, and hurting everywhere you realize wow i can do almost anything i can keep pushing even now even though you know seven days is theoretically able to kill you without sleep so you're right on the edge of of what's what you can and cannot tolerate and uh you feel like okay i can push it even a little bit more if i have to if i have to i can push more so you find out anyway here i am all busted up like a dumbass because these squid got me and i have a shark cage and i get a whole bunch of squid around the boat a few nights later throw the shark cage in the water and uh so i i quickly terrified now i'm scared of squid now when i used to be excited yeah. And so I, I, I swim through the water without protection as fast as I can down to the shark cage. I can see them all around me and I get inside the shark cage and I close it up and then they leave. Ah, okay. okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm wearing twin 72s on my back. I'm at 50 feet of water on the shark cage, dragging through the water at two in the morning and nobody's around to film. This is great. 
And so I waited there for another half an hour and nobody shows up. So I'm like, okay. So in the shark cage with me, I had a hundred foot of a rope with a buoy on it, just in case it snapped from the Mexican fisherman and I needed an extra visibility. So, you know, I had, I had the ability to raise the cage myself and alert for help passing by some cruise ship maybe. But um, as I uh, think, okay, I, I need to get some footage. I'm feeling pretty good. Cold water makes my shoulder feel good. So I take the, I take the hundred foot rope and I tie myself to it and I get out of the shark cage and I start very carefully going down to, you know, a vertical length of about 65, 70 feet, but I'm at a slope because I'm, I'm in hundred feet of rope being dragged through the water. So you're not straight up and down. Hmm. So I'm, I'm roughly a, maybe 120 feet underwater being dragged like a cat being picked up, you know, the scruff of your neck. And you're looking down into the abyss with no lights on, waiting for something to come out at you. So you're already kind of like hounds of Baskerville, right? And so you're, you're hanging out and you're looking. And as soon as the animals show up, I'm going to turn my lights and I'm going to, great, great shot. And all of a sudden I realize I'm looking at the bottom and I see the bottom. Well, that's weird because I know I'm in a thousand feet of water or, or more. I can't see the bottom. So what am I looking at? And then it, I was looking at this texture that was moving odd. And it wasn't moving at the same speed as the plankton that's going by me. So I'm like, that's, that's things alive. And just as I started thinking that it flashed to white and it was a squid, but wow. it wasn't a humble squid. It was, it's probably 25, 30 feet long. Oof. And I looked down at this squid and I'm like, Oh my God, that's one of the few times in my life I've ever gotten really scared. So I, I, I turned over and I grabbed my, uh, my, my rope hand over hand with one bad arm holding a camera and I get up in the shark cage as fast as I can. And I turn around and it's gone and wow. I don't have a film. So that's one of those fish stories. I just don't talk about, but I've seen it. <laughs> but a year later I filmed them in, and it was for history channel uh, monster quest. And so I filmed, I don't know if it was that same squid, but the squid that I filmed was about 50 feet long. So I knew where a giant squid was. I knew what time of year it was. I knew the depth it was. I knew the physical location on the earth. And I took that information and a day to, a, to the day, a year later, I filmed the squid in the exact same spot. Huh. And uh, so, you know, I- so I, Does I, that I, say I, something for their habits or something? They're, oh yeah, I mean, they're all, they're prey items and they're, you know, squid are, are what they call benthic, uh, but they're pelagic. So they, they're, they swim through the water like a tuna or something. They're migratory, but they often will scour the seafloor. So they are aware of benthic behavior all the time, even though they'll flee, they'll feed in the water column as well as off the bottom. And um, giant uh, sperm whales are there that time of year. And the only thing mm -hmm. a sperm whale that big is going to be there for is really big Humboldt squid or giant squid. And so I had a pretty good chance there's either some record size Humboldt squid in that area or giants. And I, I filmed a giant. Amazing. Amazing. And I've, I've seen or heard that maybe I read this somewhere or something. They, their eye can be the, like the size of a basketball, you know, pretty big. Yeah. yeah they, they, of course they got eyelids. The, uh, people don't think that, you know, Oh, well they think it's going to be a big round fish eye and that's all you're going to see. And, and you see a lot of artists depictions like that. It's not that way at all. They have a very expressionate eye with eyelids and a, uh, for all people like to call it a nectating membrane, which is a clear membrane. that will cover up his eye with to protect it from a thrashing prey item, but uh, they'll squint their eyes. They'll open their eyes. They'll blink. Uh, it's really quite extraordinary when you come face to face with a squid 
you definitely get the impression that's a problem solving intelligence and you're on the menu. Wow. Now, how do they compare to an oct octopus, octopi? Oh, octopus are cute. Well, I, I love handling octopus. I, I, I have had so much joy handling giant Pacific octopus off Seattle and Washington State. And, and uh, I played with the larger octopus that we have in Northern California and the smaller octopus we have in Southern California. I was just, they're one of the sweetest animals you'll meet. If you like cats, you'll love octopus because they're the same kind of animal. They're, they're loving. They like to be touched. They're problem solving. They're just a blast. But they live in a three-dimensional environment that's basically two-dimensional because they really seldom leave the bottom. So they live in this two-dimensional environment, but there's, of course, 3D. They go inside caves and crevices a lot to hide from prey, predators. Um, uh, squid, on the other hand, they live in a three-dimensional world the whole time, and, and a two-dimensional world to them is, uh, is they, don't, they don't understand it. They, from what I can see, they, uh, they are so adaptive. Um, when they see a new animal, I've, I've, have, I've fed them Pacific species, the Humboldt squid, I have fed them Atlantic animals that I've kind of illegally brought into the other sea. You know, I, how many people do you know have taken um, smuggled fish into Mexico? You know, I think I'm one of the only people I know of. But um, <laughs> I did that to prove a point is that this was a fish for eating. I bought it for eating, but it was an entire salmon, big salmon. And it was a salmon that, you know, it, it happens on the East Coast. And so I took this giant salmon. Uh, about a 40 pound salmon and I presented it to humble squid to see if they would identify and, and eat a newly exposed to species. And they didn't even hesitate. It was instantaneous, of course, but it proves a point that, okay, I know for a fact, they've never seen this species and they devoured it without a blink. Um, so they will constantly look at new animals as a prey source, even if they haven't, you know, encountered them before. And humans are, you know, naked monkeys are definitely on that list. They, uh, They've uh, they've attacked and eaten several people. Uh, some of the times while I'm there filming, the police will call all the boats in and account for everybody and say, yeah, another boat that was full of Humboldt squid had floundered and sank. And the feeding frenzy of five, six and seven foot and maybe even an eight foot or uh, giant squid underneath them. saw all of a sudden these new people are there and they, they dragged them down and ate them. Their phone, the two people that were covered out of three, their families couldn't identify them the very next morning. So that gives well, you, you know, an idea. I was going to ask you if, if squid have ever killed anyone. I, I'd never heard oh, yeah. of that. Yeah, they, they definitely, um, I'm, well, well they, they, they tried and failed with me. I've, I've dove with them over 2000 times of, 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 of back engineered and over the half the time I'm, I mean, I'm hit attacked. So, it's a 50% chance that they're going to attack me. That's my experience, but it's good because I've got a camera and I've got the equipment so I can endure it. You know, it's like, don't walk into a pound covered in a meat suit, you know, with a bunch of bunch of yeah. pit bulls and Rottweilers in there. You're probably going to get bit where if yeah. you walk in there with a bite suit, you're probably going to be fine. Well, there you go. Just yeah. wear the right gear and you can do any diving. You know, I've I done can't believe I've never heard. I never realized that they were aggressive and actually, actually went for people. I mean, I oh, would have yes. never, ever, never thought about that. Boy, yeah, that's some really of the works you can find on, you can find a few uh, people of, I don't, I don't promote myself, but actually I've become kind of a hermit. Um, but if um, lots of people have done little quick shows about my work. So if you go on YouTube, you can probably find some things on Diablo Rojo, which is the red demon. Um, 
you know, that- or, or demonio rojos. With the demonio rojo is actually what they are called by the Mexican uh, mm-hmm. people, the fishermen, um, because there's only one devil, but there's lots of demons, so they're actually demonio rojo. But I had said diablo rojo um, on purpose to a particular company that I was pitching the idea to. And they took the idea and they did it themselves and they, they didn't even change the name. So they kept Diablo Rojo and I knew that was nobody ever calls them that. So they actually published a lie that I had I baited them up for uh, because if they had actually hired me to do the show that I developed for them, I would have said, oh, by the way, the name is actually Demonio Rojo. So if you see Diablo Rojo, it's somebody that stole it from me. <laughs> so oh, wow. That's a little that means devil, devil what? Devil something. Yeah, demonio, which is uh, de- which is demon, demonio. Oh, so it's devil, demon. Yeah, diablo. No, Diablo's diablo. Devil. Diablo right. is devil. Diablo Rojo is the fake name I gave him as a security. Oh, oh, I got it. Against yeah. them, and then demonio, which is demon. Demonio Rojo, R O J O, for the letter for the word red, red demon. So yeah. anyway, you find a lot of stuff on YouTube about that. And if you also look at the, I think it's called Scar, all lowercase with four stars, Scar, four stars. I still have that up and it's um, the biggest Humboldt squid ever filmed. He was big around as a 55 gallon drum, about, about eight feet long, 250 pounds. So <laughs> wow. Big squid. They get bigger than people tell you. And I've, uh, I've taken a lot of scientists uh, down uh, with Nat- National Geographic, Animal Planet and Discovery and, and others. And uh, it's funny how they're all, well, you know, the, the humble squid only gets to five feet long and about 90 pounds. And that's, that's an extremely big one. And they want to attack people. And I'm like, well, why don't you sit down and watch this video that I have of, of these really big squid attacking humans. I got them on film attacking the people I'm with or attacking me. Um, wow. So, wow. So well, and, the then they, I, and then the scientists will get mad at me because I showed them, oh, you're actually, you got some improv. Your information's wrong. Let me give you this for free. Oh, they hate me for that. There's some squid wow. scientists that just absolutely hate me because they, they've worked on these long white papers about what the squid will do. And then I just show, roll them 30 seconds of tape and it blows everything they've worked on away. And I think it endangers Jeez. their funding or something. Wow. Wow. I, uh, the, <laughs> only, the only thing that I saw that, which is nothing because you've like I said, I probably got 12 or 15 hours realistically night diving in uh, Cayman Islands and an nice. octopus. I was like scared an octopus and it shot into this little, there was a little tube like a pipe and it squished itself right inside of that pipe. I couldn't believe it made it into that. small. Yeah. it was like a, a two inch pipe or something and went, went inside, squished his head right in there. The whole thing. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I, did a show for, I should have did a show for a history channel called boneless horror. And, um, we had this lovely person, uh, uh I think she, her, I think her ancestor was Vietnamese and she was fantastic. She was, I think she was one of the co-producers and she was brilliant. I, we all loved her and we just thought she was brilliant and everything she was doing was spot on. But every time she would say the, the title, she would leave out one of the R's. So it was boneless horror. And so we all started uh, giggling that, yeah, the boneless horror can go through anywhere as long as her teeth can get through the hole. So (laughs) uh, that's what an octopus can can actually fit anywhere they can fit their beak through. And their beak is relatively small. You know, if you've got an animal that's, you know, three, four feet around, uh, their their beak is just a little bit bigger than a, a half a dollar. 
and they yeah. can fit through a hole that big. It's it's extraordinary, really. And that's their heart. The hardest part of them, right, is their beak. Yeah, yeah. Squid yeah. can't do that. Squid actually have a um, have a cartilaginous, um, if you want to call it that, a pen that goes in the all the way up their body and attaches their head to their body, and that attaches their gills and musculature, uh, which is quite inc impressive. Um, they're incredibly strong animals for their size, uh, much more than a human. And um, so if you, mm. if you come across a squid of equal size and weight, you're, you're going to get your ass kicked. I mean, it's the same way, too. Or if I say, hey, Martin, why don't you hand wrestle my, my 185 pound cougar? Have fun, guys. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> if, if I were to wrestle a 220 pound deer, I know that I would lose. So, you know, any animal of equal size and weight, you're going to I mean, a, a bunny rabbit. You know, I mean, you're just so we're really kind of we're kind of wimpy in the animal kingdom. These little naked, hairless monkeys, and and when we're in the water, breathe on a compressed air, and we're we're obviously delicious. You know, yeah. there's, there can be problems if you're not ready for it. I've been attacked the only by thing we have is this is all we have right here. You know, yeah, maybe sometimes no I question yeah. that, and yeah. we don't have much of that right now. So, but, uh, oh, yeah, so I think, so I think I, people I, are getting dumber. So God bless them. I I do think so. Yeah. Our smartphones are making us dumber too, yeah. Um, so let's let's hear let's hear the story. How uh, let's talk about and if you would go into the detail of of how this all happened, what you were doing, and all that stuff, if you would. Yeah, I like I said, you're um, you're like the second person uh, that I've spoken, to, or third person. You're the third person, um, and uh, this this bothered me for years when I saw this, and basically, you know, I'm. I'm you know, I got 15,000 15, hours of dive time, but 10,000 hours of that is inside subs. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because you can stay in the water five, six, seven hours at a time. And, you know, I've been doing it for 45 years almost. So, you know, I've, I've been piloting a lot of different subs. And um, But scuba diving, you're only underwater for, you know, two to three hours at a time, maybe one if you're wearing just a scuba bottle, um, depending on the rebreather you're wearing. In this particular case, I was wearing a Prism 2 rebreather, one of my favorites. And um, it's fragile rebreather, but it's tough. It, it can Fragile in the way that you can smack it up, but at the same time, it's just reliable. You know, So the systems are simple. So I really like that about it. But um, it's still electronic controlled. So it's always one of those that you're worried about. You're always double checking, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I'm wearing this rebreather that can keep me underwater for five hours, independent of depth. And I have a mixture inside the uh, rebreather that can take me to, to 400 feet. It's uh, oxygen and helium wow. and nitrogen in the mixtures. Um, Boy, that's really deep. Jeez. Well, it is. It is. When you actually look at a at a, uh, a 40 story building. And then you realize that's how deep I am under the sea. Then you realize, okay, those big skyscrapers downtown, he's actually that far underwater. Yeah. And in this particular case, uh, I started off with my buddy Dale um, and this was in Sea Cortez. And it was, I think it was in November or uh, uh, October, November. So the water was relatively cool in comparison. And we were in the Northern Sea of Cortez in an area called the Enchanted Islands. And there's some seamounts out there that are thermally active. They're volcanoes. And they still have potentially deadly hydrothermal vents. Some of the water coming out of them is beyond boiling. So if you land on one and uh, you only got a few seconds of your wetsuit to, to get out of one or you're, you're going to become lobster, um, mm -hmm. they're really bad. 
Other times they're just just enough to burn you, but not not kill you. Um, but the reason that we're diving here on the seamount that's 65 miles offshore, it's almost in the middle of the sea, and and um, we're diving on the seamount that has all these hydrothermal vents on it because that's one of the places that we've seen poachers get, um, catching totuava, which is one of the most rare and endangered fish in the world. And uh, Chinese demand has put it on the uh, endangered species list for its swim bladder. The mm. swim bladder to the Chinese mafia, which are currently in Baja all over the place, working with all types of uh, really bad terrorists from the Middle East as well as uh, drug cartels. The, the reason they're doing all this is because they found out it's a great place to traffic humans, which I have filmed that as well, but also to capture endangered animals and sell them. And the Totova is one. The swim bladder on a Totova is worth $10,000 to $30,000. It's the same as cocaine. Jeez. One fish. So wow. every one of these fish is worth the same as cocaine, but you don't go to jail as much and people don't shoot you as quickly over mm -hmm. this. So it's a little safer, but just as profitable. So the co the uh, drug dealers, drug cartels, excuse me, hire the uh, fishermen to go out there and harvest these Totova. Jeez. And they do. And I used to film them until I, I, uh, I had some, Several people tried to murder me, so I decided, okay, it's they're starting to follow me home and come around people that I love, so I guess I better stop. So uh, I'm not afraid of them, but if they hurt a family member, you know, what, how can you protect that, you know? So I'm down on this seamount, and the idea is that Dale will start. He's wearing Rebreather too, same kind. I trained him how to, how to dive it. He's going to go down to 200 feet, and he's going to stay there on this ridge. And on this ridge, he's going to be going – and trying to film Totuava on the flow. On, right down off that ridge is a soft mud flow that goes down to 1,600 feet. And um, I'm going to go to about 250 feet on the mud flows, which, which is where all the shrimp mass up in these huge schools so that the Totuava feed on them. And the Totuava, actually, they uh, they croak like frogs. And um, mm. so you can hear them. You can actually hear them ribbit and ribbit in the distance. Wow. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a phenomenal fish. And they weigh 300 pounds. They're not small. Um, you'd think you'd be able to see one pretty easy, you know, but um, they blend in perfectly. So it's very hard to find. I did eventually film one. But I turn and I think what I see is a shadow being cast by a large fish. And I turn my camera on it with lights on. They're 6,000 degree Kelvin lights. So they're very beautiful, bright white, blue lights, high level lights. And all I get is the snow blindness back. But what I saw through the snow blindness was a sharp edge. And I thought, oh, okay, that's, that's, that's okay. What is that? So I look through my viewfinder, can't see it. I pull my camera down, can't see it. And then I just, you know, I'm the kind of guy who's like, okay, I'm just going to lunge towards it. I got a wing on my camera. That's three feet across and it's aluminum wing that's bolted to the camera and it holds the lights and different stuff and buoyancy tubes and stuff that I have on it. But the reason that I have that wing is the reason I invented it is because I put it in the mouths of great white sharks. So <laughs> if a white shark is kind of coming, you know, a shark is, I love sharks. Like people love dogs. So when I see a white shark, I'm not afraid of it. I just need to know what to do. And they're like kids. Everything goes to the mouth. So they, they bite test things often. So a white shark will come by. And if you're not aware of it, he's and you're not a prey item, what he'll do is he'll just like bump you with the nose. And if his mouth is open, he'll he'll scrape his mouth. 
and that can that can hurt you, right? Um, so they're not actually doing a bite; they're doing this little bump that they do, and it's very quick. It lasts for you know it's about this fast, bump, and then they're done. So I need to be able to hold the camera up so they can do that. And then they realize, okay, he's not edible. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll look for something else. Maybe come back around, give him a really great shot, which I've used in Shark Week all over for decades. <laughs> but um, it wasn't a shark. And that's when my heart sank. And I, I thought, okay, this could be an anti-diver drone. And with my background, I've actually tested, I've dove against different technologies that are used to protect aircraft carriers and nuclear-powered vessels. Uh which all of ours are, are, are at the moment, they're, they're carriers. But, um, you know, we protect those very carefully, and they have systems right now the Navy will use to kill any diver that tries to get under them. They don't care you're a sport diver just getting a selfie. So I encourage sport divers, don't try to get diving under a, an, an aircraft carrier. There are things there that you do not want to encounter, and they're not nice. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll die. Um, so I immediately thought of this, oh, crap. You know, Mexican Navy has something badass and I'm about ready to get nuked. And it didn't move towards me. So I take my camera and I lunge towards it with it running. And the lights on and all I got, I've, I've reviewed the footage. You can see the flat face but in this weird reflection, but you can't see any detail because the light was reflecting off of this thing like nothing I'd ever seen before. And at that point, my heart goes up. Okay, this can go bad real fast. So I... I'm, I realize that as I am settling down to take another look and reevaluate what this thing is, now I can see a corner and a flat face. And I'm like, this is, uh, at the time I was thinking man-made and probably bad. Um, and so this, is, this all happens in like three seconds. And then I kind of, I stop and my thin tips are on the seafloor and I'm looking at this thing and I'm lowering my camera down just a little bit, trying to look over my lights. And that's when I see that this thing is a cube. I can see the top of this. It's, it's about three feet across and three feet deep. And it's a gold, shiny, back illuminated cube. And my heart just went right up on my throat. And I, I, again, like when I saw the giant squid, I had that fear. And this is like the second or third time in my life I felt fear. I did, I did not like this feeling at all. It, I felt totally toyed with by whatever this was. But I realized also that in this three second that lasted, like felt like a whole day, um, this thing was moving away from me at the same speed that I was moving towards it. Every time I moved towards it, it moved away. So I started to uh, swim towards this thing. And it would maintain its distance away from me absolutely perfectly. And I'm descending along the, the seamount as fast as I can swim and gallop off the bottom, holding my camera up, this thing is able to keep that exact distance. So I have to clear my ears about six times, and then I had to stop because then I knew if I clear my ears, if I started to dive at 200 feet and I clear my ears five or six times, I know I'm at 400 feet. I'm, I'm, I'm at my max depth. And I look at my computer and sure enough, I'm pretty close to 400 feet. And so I rest, I start to rest on the bottom, still looking at this thing. And as I rest on the bottom, I'm putting my camera face down. And that's when the first time I really saw the whole thing, when I took my lights completely off of it. Now I could actually see that this thing was a cube suspended off the bottom. And it was just perfect. It was beautiful and terrifying because this isn't, 
anything I've ever seen before. Now, see, you got to understand is that, you know, at the age of 15, I was living on my own, everything you can explain. It might be unknown at the moment, but you can find out what it is later. You can take a picture of the animal or the thermal vent or the rock, and you can give that information to somebody who knows that by specialty, and they can come back and tell you what it is. My whole life has been, Scott, we don't know what that is, but we'll let you know when we, de we determine what species it is, and, and you can help us with identification because you found it. And this happened to me several times. This wasn't one of those moments where I'm looking at something that was toying with me. And, and by the way, something I didn't tell you that I, I, I'd like to bring you back to the point where Dale and I are together at the, we haven't separated yet and I haven't seen this thing. Dale and I started to hear the most remarkable sound I've ever heard underwater. And I've heard submarines, I've heard rock slides, I've heard sand slides, I've heard whales. I mean, I've heard a lot of stuff in the water. Um, there was a, a rumbling that was downslope, and it didn't sound like it was that far, but of course water travels beautifully underwater. So, you know, you can hear a whale from, some people have heard whales from 100 miles away underwater with as a diver. So if you can hear that, you know, I don't know how close it was, but it's felt, you could feel the vibration of this sound, intermittent, crazy sound. And you know what it sounded like was if you've ever seen one of those giant D9 caterpillars, one of these you know, like 40 ton giant caterpillars with the big blade and they're moving giant boulders. It sounded like that. It sounded like a machine moving tremendous amounts of boulders. That's what it sounded like. I'm not saying that's what it was. Now, remember, I'm on a thermally active volcano. I'm diving on thermal hot vents, which is a photosynthetic mixture which creates the, the um, algal blooms that these shrimp eat and that the Tuatuava have been found feeding on. So I'm here because of the hydrothermal vents. So I'm thinking this could be thermal activity downslope. I don't really know. Um, but it was, it was deeper than I could go because I was at 400 feet with this thing, this cube, and I didn't see any rock slides or anything. So uh, I didn't see any evidence of, of, you know, lava mounts. So there's a particular plume that these uh, thermal vents can put out. Um, and there's a sulfur-based vent, which is a sulfur silica solution that's coming out, and it's usually black or tan. And then you got the other ones that are crystal clear. You can't see it except you can see the shimmer. And that's fresh water that's being superheated that used to be seawater, but it was chemically adjusted. It was shifted with the superheating steam down there near the, the core of where these, these magma vents are. And it separates it into steam and it reconstitutes as fresh water. So you got fresh water coming out of these vents and that isn't boiling. Uh, it isn't making bubbles, even if it's, if it's above 212 degrees, it'll boil you. And I'll be damned if I didn't land on one of those vents as I'm trying to look at this, this, uh, this this cube at 400 feet deep and i land right on the damn thing and of course what you know you, i'm in a wetsuit i don't feel it right away but when you feel it it's already really you know your whole wetsuit's burning and so oh, sure. yeah. in fire so like a genius i jump off the bottom and i'm slapping out the fire on my leg and of course it's not on fire i'm 400 feet underwater and uh, that's when i start thinking okay i've got to reassess here this thing is gone it just left and I start breathing on my rig. I'm standing on the bottom. I'm about shin deep in the mud from the bottom. And I can see this big rolling cloud, which is the displacement of mud that I just stepped on. And it looks over and I realize it's not moving. 
it's just kind of just their normal. And what that got me was that as I'm, I'm standing up, I'm slapping out the fire and I'm realizing that that giant, that one meter cube, the way the, the speed that it was traveling, which was my swimming speed. And then it bolted away from me relatively quickly. Well, I've filmed point blank whales. I've filmed their eyes. And when they move away from you or when they move lateral to you, they just, they displace a lot of water when they do that. And the water comes back around it, around the head in these very powerful vortices and it creates a suction. So if a, if a whale is right here and a little diver is right here and the whale moves his head, you quickly go where that whale used to be and you spin around yeah. and you, you hang onto yourself because you're in an underwater washing machine. Yeah. When this thing left at a pretty fast speed, it made no such water movement. And that's not surprising at all. Well, and, and I'll talk it was to that. me because yeah. I've never seen that before. But that's yeah. when I actually was standing on the bottom. My, my, I realize I'm not burning. And I'm doing a, a what they call a vented sea check, which is an oxygen toxicity check we, we, you mentally do when you're thinking, okay, maybe my gas mix is bad. Maybe I'm seeing things. Right. And, of course, I had the presence of mind to do a, a, a neurological assessment to myself underwater. The system performed perfectly. I did all the, the mental uh, computations in my head that I, I'm used to doing. Everything was working perfectly in my brain. I wasn't breathing a bad mix. And so that's when I realized, son of a bitch, I, what I saw was real. And mm -hmm. I have no idea what it was. And I just realized, okay, I'm 400 feet deep all by myself, 60 miles offshore on an underwater sea mountain that may be erupting. And I'm seeing glowing cubes. I really need to leave. And that's when I just turned around. I went right back up. And um, Dale and I finished the dive at 250 and to, to the top of the seamount, which is 165 feet. And we spent another couple of hours at those depths. And then we just, you know, inflated our little little uh, buoy and started to decompress while drifting in the water. And I never told anybody what I saw until just this year. And not that even Dale? Did, 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 Dale did not see it, right? No, Dale didn't see it. I never told him. He, the only you way he's going to learn about this is by watching this. <laughs> so. <laughs> so now a couple of things that I'd like to to say, because I don't know how much you've looked into basically the UFO, UAP, whatever topic at all. I don't know what you've looked into. But first of all, there's there's uh, a lot of talk about, you know, trans mediums that these things travel through air and into the water they seem to make no splash when they go in the water when these things in the air take off at you know a couple thousand miles an hour there's never a sonic boom there's uh there's no there's uh unlike what you you did hear some sound most of these things that are in the sky make no sound at all which is another very strange thing uh yeah. no no source of propulsion there was uh recently a uh someone high in intelligence I guess uh, Corbell and Knapp was interviewing him, and he was basically saying that the U.S. is in possession of a a non-human craft, and they've gained the in interior of it, and there's no uh, source of fuel, propulsion, or anything inside that they could see. So, I mean, I don't know what if those facts are true or whatever. I I do not know. But these are these are the things you never saw any source of propulsion from this thing. Right. No, no. And, um, you know, it, it was a beautiful thing to look at if you were if you weren't there in front of it, if you were to see film of it as, wow, that's pretty amazing because it was emitting light. 
but it wasn't really emitting enough light around it to cause much of a glow. Um, the light didn't behave naturally. And it, you know, when mm -hmm. you see as a diver, I spent a lot of time underwater with lights. That's kind of what I do. And every time you see a diver facing you underwater uh, with his uh, with his light, you'll see this wonderful bright fog around it as it, it illuminates the particular matter inside the water column, as well as split, you know, prismatic fall off, you know, as, as a different angles in the water will carry it depending on temperature and halocline, thermocline, all these things make the lights behave weird. Um, this thing did not affect, wasn't affected by all. There was a crisp, clean cube the whole time. There was no foggy lights coming off of it. So again, I, I, I got nothing. <laughs> I wish I had something. And I wish I could say, oh yeah, this was XYZ. Uh, people have seen that yeah. before, no problem. But um, Hang on just, just one second. I want to say goodbye to everyone at KGRA Radio. Thank you. Again, we'll be back next week with Dave Mason, uh, Skinwalker Ranch, etc. So uh, we're going to just continue on a little more because this is just, just too good to to end the show right now. <laughs> so if that's all right with you, we'll get I'm at fine. least a full, I, I, full hour. I owe in. you. Yeah, I yeah. owe you some time. I'm sorry about being late. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. So this, this uh, a couple of things. It, so it's a... By the way, just and I wrote you in an email that other people uh, have seen gold uh, craft. There was uh, actually I just really? saw the the encounters uh, on Netflix. The the which uh, I thought you know the first one show is really good, and you know I have mixed feelings about how I feel about that series. But the last uh, the last one of the series, which in my opinion isn't really that good. However, a past guest was or two were in there, and it was nice to see them. But still, uh, the couple that was in a hotel—I mean, I'm sorry—in their house in uh, Japan was was talking about watching this bright gold-colored craft outside of the window. If you want to watch that, that's in that yeah. series, the very last one in that. But um, yeah, there was a schoolyard sighting where a guy said it was so bright and gold that it like blinded him, which I think is really odd. You know, I mean that that color. And for this to be a, a just a cube, three meter, you say it's about a three meter cube? Roughly. I mean, I didn't get it close enough to measure. Right. The, the closest I ever got to it was probably about 10 feet. And yes. the water visibility was about 12 feet. The water was very dark and mucky. Um, so I never got close enough to say, you know, I can precisely gauge the length of it. But the face of it and the height of it was definitely three feet. So I never got to see the whole cube by itself. Water visibility just didn't let me, but it was, uh, I never saw any dissimilar length on the shape. So if it moved yeah. like this at all, it was still three by three by three, roughly, you know. Yep. But so now absolutely. here's a, here's a, Mary Grace is asking, have you talked to Ryan Graves? He does, Ryan Graves has this organizations for pilots, but not necessarily. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you because. Uh, what they sighted in 2015 off the coast of Florida and then over in the Middle East, eventually when they went over there, the same object was a sphere and inside the sphere was a cube, which is really bizarre, really strange. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm sure that they'd like, like to hear uh, from you. That would be, uh, you know, I mean, just the more information we can all have about this type of stuff. And this is such an odd thing, but everything that you're saying about it would make me say that you saw what they call a USO, which is uh, an unidentified submerged, submerged ob 
Chick. I think I'm not oh, sure exactly what it means, but still, submerged. yeah, it was definitely yeah. submerged. I, and, uh, I gotta tell you, it, oh, go ahead. No, no. I mean, it sounds almost like a cat and mouse type of situation. And, you know, yeah. like it was reacting in some type of, with some type of intelligence. And it really makes you think if the <clears> thing was just a cube with, you didn't see anything but smooth surfaces, right? Yep, exactly. And it wasn't equally illuminated. There were different intensities, you know, from the center to the edge. And it seemed to move. The light intensity wasn't fixed. It, it seemed to move behind something and was just presented on the flat face. Um, it's kind of like what a... About, yeah, okay. No, I mean, um, you know, that's the thing about, uh, you know, pilots reaching out to me. I appreciate that. I, I really sympathize with them now because... Um, I mean, I'm just a diver and I'm just, uh, you know, camera guy. But the bottom line is that I've got a lot of hours doing that and I've earned a reputation as being somebody who gets the shot. And I, uh, I had a lot of people sponsoring me. And uh, one, my biggest sponsor, I thought the guy was my friend. I really, you know, we had a 10-year relationship and we were always very close. So I finally, well, you know what? He's been very kind to me this recently and he's talking to me on the phone right now and I... I kind of softly mentioned this to him and uh, he goes in this thick European accent. He goes, you mean like a, like a giant squid? No, no, it wasn't that it was, it was something else. He goes, was it man-made? And I go, no. And he goes, you mean like alien? And I go, yeah, I, I think so. Within a week I had lost my sponsorship um, wow. And within the year, I had lost about fifty thousand dollars in sponsorship, which I was re I was really depending on. And I lost that because I told somebody. So I can only imagine what happens to a pilot if they say this and they're like, you know what, yeah. you may have an emotional break, uh, or you're dumb enough to 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 go against the rules. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna punish you. Uh, I get that. I actually get that because it happened to me and it happened hard. And yeah. um, that was uh, that I'm was really a tough. Sorry. Really sorry to hear that. That's well, that's no, really terrible. I mean, here's the thing: you're only telling the truth of what you saw, and, as a and you're being punished for it. Which is, you know, why I got to tell you, it comes down to fear. There's a fear level where people just don't want to. They don't want this part of their world, and it, it's just too hard to comprehend. And so well, they don't want to deal with. Was, it. I think he might have been afraid that I was going to make his uh, brand look bad too. So. He, he thought, oh, my God, if Scott's going over the edge, I don't I don't want to associate with him anymore. So I think that's what happens. It really kind of hurt, too, is that, uh, you know, they're supposed to be a very big supporter of vets. And uh, they actually canceled my contract officially online on November 11th, <laughs> which that's is Veterans Day, of course. So it's a sacred day uh, to me. Oh, oh, oh I'm so sorry. I should so have picked sorry. any other day of the year to do that. but uh, That seems like a double insult. Uh, it really is. Yeah. Got now, I want to ask you this. I've, I've been thinking this the whole time. Do you have film of this? Yeah, I do. Um, and I haven't uh, haven't looked at it in 20 years. I'm trying to bring myself. It's upstairs. I pretty well can find it within a day. But the problem is, am I safe? But the problem is, is I remember looking at that film when I got back to the hotel. And... I'm looking at them like you can't see any features. All you can see is this really weird reflecting light. That's that's oh. not normal, but 
You can't see what it is. But what you can hear is I'm wearing a rebreather, so my breathing is relatively quiet. So you can hear background sounds a little bit better, and you can hear in the background that giant machinery crunching sounds in the di far distance. You can hear it. Hmm. So, which by itself is really weird. I mean, like I said, I've filmed, I've filmed pillow lava underwater, and I've filmed uh, um, hydrothermal vents. I've even filmed an underwater landslide in uh, La Jolla, California, uh, from huh. the vantage of a submersible. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of cool things, but uh, never heard this sound before. Yeah. Wow. Now I wonder how, do you have any idea when this thing kind of scooted off an approximate knots, you know, could have been 10 knots or, or higher or, or. I never saw the full speed it went up to and it didn't accelerate instantaneously. It kind of made a gradual acceleration, but it, it went from being in full view to not being in view in less than two seconds, I would say. Well, so it, it moved faster than a diver. Yeah. I mean, there, there are, um, so I don't know exactly what you've looked into what I, or not. Not much. Oh, this okay. is all the new to astronomer, me. Astronomer friend of mine, Mark D'Antonio, was on a Navy. He was invited to go on a Navy uh, run in a submarine, and they encountered a uh, something that was traveling underwater at 200 knots, and <laughs> they, they seemed to have a name for it uh, and everything, and they seemed to, like, you know, dock it, and what do they call it? Dog it and log it, whatever it is. Um, yeah. They did that and kind of just kept it all quiet. And he witnessed the whole thing. And oh so there are, I think there are these things, whatever they are underneath. You know, I mean, you look at what is our ocean, something like 70% of our Earth's surface and and explored less than the moon. You know, so yeah. there for things to hide, there's whatever, there's certainly yeah. enough. Uh, enough stories of people say, saying that they see things coming in and out of water. And this is, goes on for decades, you know, that, um, you know, many, many things. Uh, well, there's plenty to yeah. look. If you're interested in this, plenty to look into. There's the Shelburne Harbor, Shag Harbor up in Nova Scotia. Those two yeah. incidents were mm -hmm. underwater situations. Yeah, those are yeah I, I really enjoyed watching those. I um. I think I watched them on History Channel like everybody else did. Um, yeah. But I um, I am thinking about uh, we own a, a submarine, and uh, it's a two-man submarine. goes to 500 feet, and she can stay underwater for all day. Uh, three days of life support if you need it. <laughs> wow. But how long, do you wanna, how long do you wanna stay trapped inside of a telephone booth? I don't know, but <laughs> that's about how big it is. But uh, I'm, uh, I'm hoping to raise interest in funds and support to take the submarine to the northern part of Catalina Island where a lot of people have seen USOs. I mean, I can't take this up to Mexico. I'll never get it back. Um, I've, I've, uh -huh. seen, I've seen so much tremendous corruption in 30 years mm -hmm. of filming in different countries. I, I know better to even try. Right. Um, we, had a, we had our sub in different countries already and it's a, it's a pill to get it back sometimes. So, Wow. Wow. And that's, that's what the really prestigious countries, you know, Mexico is, isn't quite that as prestigious as prestigious when it comes to making sure that you, you get your stuff back when it goes across border and customs. Mm. Um, but my mm. point is that um, I can't go to Mexico where I saw this thing. I don't think the visibility is enough anyway to dive the sub safely, but um, mm. I need at least 20, 25 feet of visibility to safely dive a sub looking for things that can foul you like drift nets and anchors and, and things like that, you got to make sure you don't ever get into an entrapment. So it's a big part of being a sub pilot. So 
Um, Catalina, on the other hand, is perfect. And there's lots of USO activity. It's here in the United States. Right. There's lots of people around here with boats. So I'm hoping, you know, over the Christmas holidays, I can find some people. We can chat. We can make a plan and uh, do some fundraising and uh, go down there. Because I didn't get a chance to film this thing, and I know why. And that's because when I put my camera face down in the mud and the lights weren't on it anymore, I could see it. So if I had just turned my lights off, oh. I would have gotten the shots of this thing. And I was too stupid and surprised. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, you can't. I, I wasn't, it's a reaction. Yeah. Well, my life is, you know, when you film something with lights, you get the shot. If you turn your lights off and, and you're not going to get the shots, you're going to get a bunch this of black. So, so reflective. Uh, yeah, yeah, and turning my lights off was something I wouldn't have thought of until, well, now. Yeah. So it only took would me you say, years to figure that out. So. Would you say this is similar to something that was like gold gilded? You know, I mean, it was it that type of gold? Like, like it looked like a solid no. gold block or a no, gold sir. color? No, sir. In fact, what I would say is that the, the, the cube would probably be completely crystal clear. Um, it was uh, there was this beautiful dance of light in back of it to, to borrow a phrase from the abyss. Um, the light inside of this thing was not like like a light from a single source. The light had it. It was it was moving and shimmering around all over inside of it and on all Jeez. the different faces of it simultaneously. It wasn't a constant thing which is why I could always see it in the dark water. I, I saw this thing vividly, even with my lights reflecting back, but I couldn't see past the big snow blindness reflection I was making. Uh, but what I could see was these beautiful, sharp corners from, from time to time as I'm swimming after it. And um, all that time, I should have just turned my lights off. I, I probably would have got something. So we're going to take the submarine and dive at night um, with uh, dangling at 200, 300 feet off of a very large buoy attached to a boat, having sip, sipping coffee, eating M&Ms and with no lights on waiting for something to fly by with cameras going. So, <laughs> well, you, you know, I mean, I have room for two. I'm just the pilot. I'll take people with me. So if you help me out, I'll let's, let's talk. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So has now that this has happened to you, um, I haven't heard of anything exactly like it, but it's fascinating to me. And I'm hoping that, with this getting out there a little, you know, maybe there's someone else that may have a similar story, you know, that of this, you know, type of situation. However, you know, you really don't think if you think about it, you have lots of eyes above the water, but you, you really, you, there's not a lot, there's not a lot of visual under the water in general. You know, not there's really. not a lot of people hanging out in subs or, or scuba diving. If they are, they're down for an hour or two in such a little tiny area of, of the ocean that we have. Well, know, I'm, privy, I'm privy to most of the military secrets on the systems that they have underwater um, because I've had to be a combat oh. diver working against them. So I've, had, I've been privy to learn a lot about what's actually out there when it comes to, you know, doing underwater mapping and, and bathymetry and limnology and learning about the different systems that are there and temperature-wise, learning everything they can about the ocean so that they can properly navigate it in case of war. And these people are some of the best at what they do, if not the best at what they do. And the engineer is always the most important part of the team because he's developing the systems that are helping these technicians and scientists find things. So the most important person when it comes to ocean exploration 
isn't the scientists. They're, they're way down on the far end. It's the engineers that develop the systems that they're put in the water that allow data collection. These guys see things and hear things and think of things that scientists, I mean, they run circles around scientists. So it's the engineers that really know what's going on, not the scientists. Um, hmm. So the, uh, and the engineers are usually those that are extremely good at keeping secrets. So they're really trustable people that aren't going to be telling the population what they don't need to hear. It's a need only basis and they stick to it. So mm -hmm. the people that I've met, they know things and you can see it in their eyes that they don't tell you that they would, it would reshape the world. Yeah. And I've seen things and I've talked to different people that have seen things um, that in the warfare community, I can tell you right now where our harbors are pretty safe, at least our ships are. Um, but if that technology is used uh, to go and look for UFOs, and we, I think we'd find it by this time Thursday. Um, we have the ability to really delve deep quickly and look, but it's a decision not to. And I'm wondering about why. You know, so, since I've seen yeah. this thing underwater, I've been sick, um, physically sick. I have uh, chronic fatigue and I have uh, skin eruptions all over my, my body and head mostly, and they hurt like cigarettes have burned you and they don't heal for a year. So, Jeez. and I lost, I, I lost a big sponsor and some credibility seeing this damn thing. So, you know, seeing it, it wasn't a blessing. It was, it was terrible. And now, I don't wish it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did you, uh, did you ever think of this could have emitted some type of radiation in some type of way? Well, I, um, I've actually been to uh, the nuclear warfare training school in Nevada, so I've actually been completely checked. Um, and I went to this nuclear school after I saw this thing, so I don't have any residual radiation other than just normal background. So it's not like this thing hurt me with anything that I know of or anything that, you know, our normal engineers can detect. Um, and of course, you know, if you're, <laughs> there's, there's three different or four different, but the, there's different types of radiation. Some of it's relatively harmless. Some of it's extremely deadly. And, um, the, uh, the stuff that travels through water is uh, usually pretty harmless, uh, cause the water absorbs yeah. it, you know, cause it's heavier, right. to, it's, it's bigger. So it travels at a lesser velocity. So, you know, water is yeah. actually a very good insulator to keep you safe from radiation. Yes. I if have uh, someone. Uh, I, I'm in touch with an Admiral, Ad, Admiral Gallaudet, uh, who has a, a real strong interest in UFOs and USOs. And I would like to, you know, we'll, we'll talk offline, but I'd like to make the connection for you there. I'm sure he'd like to talk to you about this situation. Um, I'm welcome to talk to anybody now. I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to get a dive physical for the BBC or anybody else to be on their dive mission planning. So, you know, I, I, nobody's, I'm, I'm probably going to be working for myself the rest of my life anyway. So uh, I really don't care yeah. who knows what I know now. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing of it is it, it really happened to you and yeah. you shouldn't have to be afraid to talk about something that really happened. In my opinion, it just doesn't I, even make any you. sense. You're, yeah. you're very kind for that, but I can tell you, I, I paid a heavy price for talking about it. And I believe there are other people out there that are, you know, you, you, there's a lot of people that are seeking attention and they say they saw something that they didn't and it's entertainment for them and God bless them. They're, 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 uh, they, you know, they can imagine great stuff and tell great stories. And we, we also need those people too. But when somebody sees something like this and you didn't want to see it and it negatively affects your life, um, trust me, 
nobody that sees anything like this wants to see it twice. Um, the only reason that I want to bring them, bring the sub out there and try to film it again is because, you know, you hear, <laughs> you hear people that they're out hunting in the woods and all of a sudden they have this strong odor and they see this thing fly by at great speed and the rest of their life, they're out hunting for Bigfoot. Now uh, they get, they get the bug. <laughs> well, I have a feeling it only took me 20 years, but I think I have the bug now. And yeah. uh, I really want to focus a lot of my energies that I have left at looking below the ocean for things like this. Uh, you know, my camera's already railing, and if I have some meat or attraction system on the outside of the sub and a white shark comes, bumps my submarine and get it on camera, I can lease, I can, I can license that out for income. Great. But if I have the same system in the water, I particularly intending to film a USO, you know, if I had the white shark bump into me, that's just great. It helps me pay the bill so I can keep going. Um, right. Water time is expensive time. So, you know, it, it's, it's always expensive to have a boat and support you in the water. But if, oh, uh, if, we get, if we get footage of something going by, even a few seconds of it, and I share yeah. that with the world to see and with engineers and, and researchers, you know, there may be an answer or two there that wasn't there before I started. And to me, that's the motivation. Um, yes. I yeah. didn't want to see this thing, but now I did. And I really want yeah. to capture it on film now. You can't unsee it. Now, a couple yeah. of things. Uh, I, you know, you often hear now when people have a close encounter with a UFO, you often hear about some things that happen to them, like other things that happen to them. So, uh, and, and perhaps dreams and uh, like maybe, um, some differences that you know, you find out about yourself, like, geez, I wasn't able to do this, but now I can do this. I'm just wondering, have you had anything that you can think of that has happened since this encounter that seems to be different about yourself? Um, <clears throat> yeah, questioning reality, uh, questioning what's really, what really is going on in the world. It, it, it undermined a lot of my faith. Uh, in people because look, if I saw this thing in a remote location, I know other people have seen it. Um, and if I've seen it, I know people that operate technologies that would probably be able to pick it up. Why, why aren't we hearing more about that? There's yeah. a reason it's, they don't want us to know about that. Why not? So, you know, there's a whole myriad of questions that all of a sudden happen and that, changed me uh, forever because uh, I started to realize, yeah, I've served the military most of my life. Um, but, you know, there are people unseen that uh, we didn't hire that have these jobs that do some pretty nasty things to people in our, in our government. And I have mm -hmm. a feeling that some of those people also keep secrets that, you know, the world is mature enough to know it's okay. I, I mean, I think that if we were to say, Hey, there's a little green men running around, we'll be like, Hey, cool. How are they? You know, I agree with you. And it doesn't you know, interfere we, with any religion that I know of. I've talked to a lot of people about their religions and they're saying, yeah. well, why would God just stop here? That's stupid. <laughs> yeah. I so, mean, I inter you know, interviewed a priest about this stuff and, you know, he kind of said the okay. same thing. Yes. And, you know, uh, AARO uh, came out with a report uh, a couple of days ago and it was just like, uh, it was so discouraging. Because it, it basically says that if they have more data, they'll be able to solve. They believe they'll be able to solve everything. And there's, 
There, I just think that whole program is just window dressing. And what that involves, that's, you know, the Pentagon's arm of, you know, supposedly looking into um, UFOs. And I, I think it's a bunch of BS. Um, you know, I mean, they'll they'll show like videos of things that they can solve and not of the unsolved ones. A few of them. I mean, I give them some credit for some of the things they've done. But right now it's I'm not feeling too happy about them. Uh, so, I think the whole uh, world right now is feeling the sting of uh, of yeah. uh, maybe some people not being fully truthful that should be around the world. So we, I have a yeah. feeling the whole world is getting that itch, and we all yeah. are just like, just tell us the truth. We're growing up. For most of us, yeah. are growing up. I'd like for people that haven't grown up yet to take a look in the mirror and grow up. But uh, we have a lot of people that can handle this, and why yes. not? I mean, um, yeah. You, you see people that are stressed out that have seen things like this, like myself, that have never been able to share it because the one time they did, they got their fingers pinched in the door so bad they don't want to get something else pinched. I mean, what yeah. else am I going to lose? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people walking around that have seen stuff. And I got to tell you, if you're listening to me right now, thanks to Martin and this podcast, Mr. Miss, tell somebody like Martin. Um Pick up the phone because there's a community of people out there that really want to hear this information. They're going to allow you to get this off your chest and they're going to keep it close to their chest and talk with you about what level of information they want to release. And they can keep you completely unknown if that's what you want. But I found it incredibly therapeutic to talk about this. Yeah. Uh, and the UFO community, you know, I just went to Phenomicon Uh and uh, with my partner. And I got to tell you, it was remarkable. The people there are some of the kindest groups of people I've ever met. Now, let me qualify that. I am usually going to uh, conventions with engineers, oceanographers, scientists, or people that promote diving. And you, as far as you can see, from room to room, you just got a bunch of dicks. And then you go into this place called Phenomicon and you look around room to room and they're kind, open-hearted people because they're vulnerable. They've seen something and mm -hmm. they're regular people that have seen something and they're fascinated by it. They're scared about it, but they want to be around people that have shared something like that. So I found it wonderful walking around there. And uh, that's why I opened up was because I yeah. went to Phenomicon. And so if you have seen something and you've heard something, reach out to somebody that you trust, somebody that... Um, not your friends, <laughs> not your friends, um, somebody that doesn't have any vested interest in you. You don't have any vested interest in them, but um, people like Martin uh, that can listen to your story and maybe give you some guidance. Yeah. Well, that's a great message. And I almost want to end on that, but I did have this question. I think it's a, a good question for you. How much yes, time elapsed between the encounter and the onset of medical issues? Uh, within within a month. Um, oh, wow. I have, um, yeah. yeah, it didn't last. It, yeah, and I've had them now for decades, and I've been to lots of different uh, skin surgeons and, and skin specialists. And uh, uh, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people, and they've taken samples and scrapes and stuff, and nobody has any idea what it is. They say, you, the end of your nerves are just erupting. That's why it hurts so much. Well, why are they doing that? Oh, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I have an yeah. unknown disease that uh, is very painful, and there's no cure, and and it happened literally within days of me seeing this damn thing. Jeez. Here's a, yeah. here's a, a, a Mary Grace writes this. Your footage might be able to be cleared up with today's tech. I don't want you to, my personal feeling is I don't want you to give up on that footage 
I think there could be something gleamed out of that somehow. And I uh, agree. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, I, when, when I filmed the giant squid, I was two years before anybody else that ever filmed one. And the reason that my name isn't all over the world for being the first guy to film a giant squid is that the camera system that I used was low resolution and you couldn't tell the exact morphology of the squid. You could tell by the aspect ratio and the distance of the cast throw of lights that when it opened up its arms, its arms were 35 feet across and its body length overall was about 54 feet. Well, there was a guy that uh, I met at a scientific conference who said, hey, I got a software that we use to, to boost footage that we got from Venus. Let's try it on there. It's called a Linux uh, system. And they, they, they put my, software, my, my film through there. And sure enough, you can tell by extreme detail. Yeah, that's definitely a giant squid. Scott was first. But by then, some, uh, some scientist uh, lady had uh, said she was first. But I did it years before her. So. But um, I was later... I was later um, you know, it was authenticated that I was the first in history to film it later on in another documentary, but that was after, you know, I, I missed an opportunity. So always use the highest resolution cameras that you can. That's all. That's the, that's the lesson there. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, uh, don't go anywhere after I end the show, because I'd like to talk to you a little bit. And yes, uh, but but thank you so much. And I you know, the thing. I got a lot out of this uh, talk. It was really enjoyable for me, but also disheartening when, um, you know, I had a, a similar situation happen because I do this show and I can, I'll tell you a little bit about that off air, but still sure. uh, it's really disheartening to hear that, uh, you know, you had to p pay the uh, consequence for uh, just uh, telling someone what you saw. So I'm, I'm sorry that had to happen, but well, thank you. But I anyway, I think you have a, a, still have a great attitude, and I think it's a wonderful thing that you want to chase this stuff and try to figure out what it is. I mean, that's all we really want to know. That's why I do this show is, uh, you know, I may never know in my entire lifetime, but it's still such a such a puzzle and such an interesting, you know, situation. So thank you very much. Well, you're very welcome. We're developing a website right now for our efforts to film this uh, anomaly in, the, in Catalina. And it's called Ocean Reveal. Um, so uh, the website, I think, will go up this week. So it's brand new. So if you would, okay. write it down on a piece of uh, toilet paper and keep it handy for a week <laughs> and then look. Um, you don't have to. So I'd, li I, what you, I'd like for you to do is uh, I'd like for you to send that link to me once it's live, and I will put it in oh. the show notes and in okay. uh, the text below and YouTube, et cetera. So thanks so much, Scott. Well, Real pleasure talking first. to you. Well, absolutely. If we're successful, invite me back. I may have something to show you. Yeah. Oh, boy. Wouldn't that be nice? All right. Talk <laughs> All right. to you later. Take care. Now. Bye, Martin. All right. Okay, everyone. So we will be back next week with Dave Mason. Thank you so much. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky or maybe below the ocean. <laughs>